You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I invite you to return to Isaiah chapter 9. Be reading verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, at this time that, Father, you'd be pleased to teach us from your word. You'd be pleased, O oh, Father, to open our hearts up to these wonderful truths that are in this word, to the, the glorious promise and that promise fulfilled and all of the implications of that promise being fulfilled, Father. Now, we come before you, we come before you thirsty and hungry, and we ask, Father, that you would feed us. Feed us from your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen and amen. This time of the year, sometimes when I'm making small talk, you know, when you go into the bank or when you go into a store, you go anywhere and you want to make just simple small talk, a lot of times I'll ask this question, what's Santa going to bring you for Christmas? And it's a playful question. Um, what I like about it is it's, I mean, it, it really takes you to a person's desires. And I've, over the years, I've had all kinds of answers to that question. You know, uh, A lot of times people, it's amazing how many people already have their Christmas gifts, by the way. <laughs> like, if you start, wait till next year and ask that question. Start asking that question about the first week of December. You won't get too many, but about the second week of December, people say, I already got my Christmas gift. I already, you know, I already got it. And and I think some of us can relate to that because, you know, you get these gifts and sometimes it's hard to keep them under wraps until, until December 25th. You kind of want to give them up. But uh, what the question usually does, it says a lot about the, the inner desires of the person that you're speaking to. It's way better than saying, oh, it's cold outside or saying something like that. You can really have some meaningful, some meaningful um, communication. And I remember one... One time, this has been a couple years ago, I asked one woman, young woman, I asked her, what's, what's Santa going to bring you for Christmas? And 
I remember her holding her hand up, and on her hand was this beautiful engagement ring, you know. And so, you know, there she was able to just display what's so important to her. Yeah, I'm going to be getting married. And so you'll, you'll get some wonderful, wonderful answers to that question. Let me ask a similar question. And this question will also reveal a lot about our inner desires. What has the Lord given you for Christmas? What has the Lord given you for Christmas? Our text speaks very loudly to that this morning. Our text tells us to us, a son is given. And let me ask this question, is that exciting news? Was it once real exciting and maybe has lost some of its luster? Has it dulled over time? Or is it really exciting news? We need not answer out loud. Let's just ask ourselves these questions. Another important question, and I would commend this question to you as you seek to minister to others. Ask this question from time to time. Is Jesus a real, living, abiding person in your life? Or is He more like a concept? Now, some of you know that question because I've asked some of you that question. Um, I commend that question to you as you reach out to people. Is Jesus a real, live person in your life whom you find companionship with, whom you find comfort from, whom you gain strength from? Or is He a concept? It's an important question. Very important question. This morning, I want to tease some of these things out from our text because they're there. They're speaking very loudly to us. This is a great text for this, not only this time of the year, but this is actually, you're allowed to go to Isaiah 9 during other parts of the year too. Um, it's okay. You can go there January 1st and you can go there all the way until Christmas time next year. It's a good place to go. But notice how our text starts you know, as we think about Christmas time, um, sometimes maybe the words gloom and anguish don't come to mind, but for others, sometimes they do. But this is how our text begins. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. We have these two words, gloom and anguish. Now, if I were to pass out a blank piece of paper and I would say, okay, uh, if you would, maybe sketch a quick definition of the word gloom or the word anguish. Uh, some of us might be hard-pressed to be able to do that, um, but I am quite confident that everyone in this room understands what gloom means. We got it, don't we? Because it's really a part of the fabric of our earthly pilgrimage, isn't it? We run through these seasons of gloom and anguish. You know, some of us are old enough to remember a, a really popular song, Gloom and Despair and Agony on Me. You guys remember the rest of it? Deep, dark depression, excessive misery. If there weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. Gloom and despair and agony on me. Did you feel the release in that? 
Did you feel that? That release. What, what made that song so popular? It's, it just touches on a chord that we all know so well. We all know about gloom. We all know about anguish. And there's this funny song. I mean, I, was, I could see Roy Clark in his overalls sitting there. And I think the funniest thing was the dog, you know? The, ca the camera angle would go down. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. The, the camera angle would go down, and there was this old, like, uh, it was a basset hound. Yeah, the big floppy ears. And, and there's a guy between each stand going, whoa, like that. And he had the perfect voice for it. And it was comical. It was comical because it, but it also touched on something that we, all of us, all of us experience. And, and it was a comical way to find release. Blues music is like that. Blues music is, is very much like that. You know, if you, if you set up a chord arrangement and you play certain notes over certain chords, you can create this tension. And a very good blues artist knows how to play with that tension. He can, or she can. There's a lot of young women playing blues now, too. You see them on, you, on YouTube. And, and you, can, you can create that tension with the notes, you know. And some people are really good at that. It's a feel kind of thing. And you can create that tension. You can build that tension up. And then the tension's building and building and building. And you're waiting for the release. And there are certain notes that will release that. So just release that tension. And that's what we're looking for, isn't it? Is a release. Notice the time frame. Isaiah sometimes is hard to understand because... We're not always sure if he's speaking about his contemporary time or if he's speaking out into the future. But notice the time frame that he sets here. After speaking about gloom and anguish, which we can all relate to, he says, In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And then in verse 2 and onward, you know, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Notice the time frame there. You see, Isaiah is setting up two time frames in one respect. There's the former times. There's the latter times. But he's also speaking in what we sometimes call the prophetic perfect. What does that mean? That means he's speaking as if the prophecy that he is heralding has already taken place. As if it has already happened. We call that the prophetic per perfect. And by the way, this would be a good time for me to mention something that should be mentioned quite often. And what I'm using here is what we often call grammatic, historical, Christocentric hermeneutic. Now, um, I wish Cody was here because I like looking at Cody when I say stuff like that because he makes these facial expressions that I just love, man. They're great. He's not here. Maybe he'll listen to the tape and say, hey, talking about me while well, I'm not there, huh? I had a seminary professor do that one time. Didn't know I was recording his uh, messages. And he used me as an illustration. Ah, I see Mr. Anderson's not here. And there I am as their illustration. I'm like, well, I'm listening to you in the car. <laughs> but it's all good. Um, it's really not as complicated as it sounds. Grammatical, historical, Christocentric, hermeneutic. You know every word. Most of you probably know every word in it. All of you know every word but one uh, for sure. Grammatical, what's it mean? We're paying attention to the grammar when we study our Bibles. Notice I'm paying attention to the grammar. I'm paying attention to the tense. And I'm pointing out to you the tense. Uh, Isaiah is speaking uh, in, a, in a way where he, he, he's, he's prophesying things that are going to happen many years into the future, but he's speaking as if they've already happened. And that's paying attention to the tense that the, 
that the word comes to us. It's paying attention to the grammar. That's the grammatical part. Historical. We've spent a lot of time looking at the historical situation. We cannot understand what's going on here if we don't understand the contemporary historical situation. The things that were taking place when the first audience heard these words. So the history. And of course, Christocentric. Why has it got to be Christocentric? That means it centers on Christ. Why does it center on Christ? Because Jesus says it centers on Him. He teaches us in His Word. Why is it center on Jesus? Why does it have to center on Jesus? Because Jesus says it centers on Him. That should be enough of a reason for all of us. Why is it this way? Our Lord tells us it's this way. He says, all of these things speak about me. So when we're interpreting the Scriptures, we're paying attention to the grammar, we're paying attention to the history, we're paying attention to Christ. We're looking for Christ. Where is Christ? It's the question I ask in, in our study in, in Genesis. I keep saying, where's Genesis 3.15? Where's the promise of a son? Well, we're going to be getting to that here in, in a few moments. Let's pay attention to the history. Let's notice the history. And here, in, uh, we're told that in the uh, former time, the Lord brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. If you're just getting started reading the prophets, you look at verses like that and you think, what in the world? Zebulun, uh, uh, Zebulun um, Naphtali, I'm not even sure I'm pronouncing these things correctly. I have no idea if there are places. What is this? And It's hard for us um, to study uh, when we're uh, unclear about these things. So we need to have a little idea of the geography, which is really helpful. Now, I've been pointing out in former messages that we should think of the Holy Land uh, when we're reading this uh, Isaiah 7 through 9, Isaiah 7 through 11, if you will. We need to be thinking about the Holy Land. You think of Judah in the south. You know, you've got Egypt down in the far south. You've got Judah, we'll say, in the, in the southern part of the Holy Land, if you will. Then you have Israel, or sometimes Samaria, or sometimes it's referred to as Ephraim. You have Ephraim just north of Judah, because Judah and Israel are separated at this point. Above that, you have what? What's above that? You have Syria, right? And then to the east of Syria, what do we have? We have Assyria. And then to the east of that, we have Babylon. And it's really important for us to understand that because uh, Assyria, as we have seen, Assyria is gaining all this steam and all this power, aren't they? And they're projecting power and they're conquering nations. And obviously, they're gonna, one of the other superpowers of the day is Egypt. They're eventually going to want to get to Egypt. They're going to eventually want to sack Egypt. Now, when they do that, how are they going to get to Egypt? There's only one way. They're going to come down the coastland. Or they're going to come down some of the roads that go through Syria. And then they're going to go into Israel or Ephraim or Samaria, whatever you want to call it. They're going to come in to that region. Then they'll eventually get to Judah. Then they'll go down to, uh, down to Egypt. That's the way they have to go because the there's nothing but a desert anywhere else. That's the way they're going to come. Now, in the back of some of your Bibles, you don't need to look there now, but in some of your Bibles, you know some of your Bibles have those maps in the back? Uh, generally speaking, one of those maps is going to be a map of the conquest. It's going to be a map that shows the inheritance of each tribe. And if you look at one of those maps, you look in the very north, you're going to see the most northern tribe is Dan. Dan is all the way up in the north. And then along the coast up in the north, you'll find Asher. Underneath Dan, uh, you'll find Naphtali. And underneath Naphtali, you'll find Zebulun. Now, what is Isaiah making reference to? He's making reference basically to that whole northern region up there. 
if you will. I think he's speaking of the area loosely. So we would think about Dan, we'll think about Asher, we'll think about all of those areas all the way up in the north. What is significant about these areas up in the north? Well, when Assyria comes, where are they going to be first? Who is going to get the brunt of it? When Michael came into Florida, who took the worst of the storm? It's people closest to its leading edge, huh? The Assyrian army was really a... Um, when they came into a land, they just savaged it. I mean, they just savaged it. And the zeal of that army, when they're just getting started, can you imagine the zeal and the force and the statement that they wanted to make? And obviously, historically speaking, Zebulun and Naphtali took the brunt of this. They were the first ones reached. They were savaged by the Assyrians. And then people were carried away. It was, it was terrible. That's why in verse 2, that's one of the reasons in verse 2. It's only one of the reasons. But in verse 2, you see the people who walked in darkness. And then the third line down, those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness. When we encounter darkness in the, in the Scriptures, we need to understand that darkness is a symbol of sin. It's a symbol of unbelief. It's a symbol of wickedness. It's a symbol of oppressive conditions. It's a symbol of death and judgment. And all of these things are all mixed in in verse 2. It's all mixed in. It's all mixed in together. And ultimately, the cause of this was idolatry. It's trusting in something other than God, trusting in false gods. And as we saw last week, human reliance, human dependence, trusting on humanity was one of the leading causes of all of this. But notice verse 2. As I often say, anywhere where you find a really dark passage, what is nearby? Grace. Look at verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You know, Isaiah speaking about this as if it already happened. Wouldn't happen for another seven centuries but he's speaking about it as if it had already happened. Now, just as darkness is a symbol of sin, unbelief, wickedness, and etc., light actually is a symbol of life, holiness, righteousness, godliness, God's presence. Light is emblematic of spiritual life, illumination, enlightenment. And we might ask ourselves a question, okay, the people who are in dark, deep darkness have seen a great light. What is the source of this light? Where has this light come from? Verse 6 answers, For to us a child is born. To us a child is born. Who is this child? Matthew identifies him. If you keep your place in Isaiah 9, I think it would be worth your time to turn to Matthew 4. Some of you already know the verses quite well. But it's good to read them. It's good to know where they are. It's good to consult them. Keep your hand and. Isaiah 9, we're going to come back, but look at Matthew 4, verses 12 through 17. There we read these words. Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of what? Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. 
the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And verse 17 tells us from that time Jesus began to preach saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Who is this child? We all know the answer. The child is Jesus. Another question related, how can a child bring such light? How can a child bring such light? And <laughs> that really is the question, isn't it? That, that really is the question. How, how can Jesus be everything? How can, how can Jesus bring such light? That's the question I want to address with the rest of our time together, and I want to do it for two reasons. One, I want to use it, hopefully, God will use it to strengthen our faith and increase our own devotion to Christ at Christmas, at this Christmas season that we come to. But secondly, to give an answer for the hope we have. This is a good question for the water cooler at work, or at the gym, or the coffee pot, or wherever, a cup of tea on a Sunday afternoon with a friend, however it works out. Uh, these are good questions, and they're, they're, it's good to have an answer. And, more, and, and, and just as importantly, it's good to be able to turn in your Bible and say you know, just so you just so you know, this isn't my opinion here. It's uh, it's written right here. See um, Isaiah chapter nine. It's 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 written right here. I want to point out seven things that you could point to in that occasion. Whether you're preaching this to yourself in a, uh, in, in in hopes of uh, God using these verses to just increase your your own faith. Maybe your your devotion has dulled a bit. It will. Our devotion is not a straight line. It, it's up and down, isn't it? Let's just be honest with each other. We're not always equally zealous, are we? You have some days where you're very zealous. You have other days where it's a struggle, isn't it? So sometimes we want to preach this to ourselves, but other times we might want to, we might want to share this with, with others. And I want to point out seven things that Isaiah provides that will help with this all-important question. And this, I would say, is a, this is a good time to have your own Bible with you. Because these seven things, seven's hard to remember. Usually we have three points, and I realize I've got more than three points, and I don't want to carry this out for three and a half messages. I want to do it at one, so I'm kind of breaking that, that law that you, I think you're only supposed to have three points. I got more than three, so um, sorry. But we have pencils and pens, and there's a little spot on your, on, your, on your bulletin insert. You can sketch some things. But if you had your own Bible, actually... You could just underline things. I, I dug this out. Um, this is a Bible that I used when I was in seminary. Um, I tried to use it in class, but those of you who carry study Bibles around know that you can't get to the passage very quickly in them. Have you ever noticed that? Like when someone says, okay, turn to Isaiah 9, and you're, you're, you're the last one getting Isaiah 9. If you're sitting in seminary and the professor says, turn to Isaiah 9, by the time you got to Isaiah 9, he's two or three verses ahead of you. Um, so I, I, I didn't carry this, but when I was studying, I was constantly using this. It's falling apart. That's why I put it on the shelf, but I just dug it out. I noticed it the other day when I was looking for something else, and there's all kinds of things underlined in it that I forgot about. And, and I thought when I saw that, I said, I need to make an advertisement for this. Like in this text, I've got things underlined here. I've got numbers. I don't know what the numbers are for, but they made sense once upon a time. 
Um, maybe I'll figure them out, but um, carrying your own Bible to church would enable you to underline things, to write notes. You'd be able to get all seven of these points very easily. Let me get on with these seven things. The first is in, they're in verse 6. For to us a child is born. The first one is a child. If you had your own Bible with you, I'd just say, you know, in a pencil. I always like to do it in a pencil. Just underline child. Why is that so important? Child. Where is this great light going to come from? Isaiah answers, for to us a child is born. Why is that so important? Why a child? Because the one who is to come is born in the same way that you and I were born. He will be human, fully human, and thus able to sympathize with gloom and anguish and grief. Come this morning grief-stricken. Jesus is fully human and knows grief. He wept. He wept at a tomb. Even though he realized he was going to be raising Lazarus right from that tomb, he still wept. Why did he weep? Because, because he, he's, he's, he just, he's just so in touch with our emotions and our feelings. A child is born. He's human. He's human. He'll be born of a woman. He'll be like us in every way except for this. He'll be without sin. And he'll, in his humanity, he's going to be able to represent us just as Adam represented us in the garden. Jesus, as the last Adam, will be able to represent us as well. And he achieved a spotless record in his humanity, a spotless record that we need. There's only one. Sometimes I'll tell people when I'm, trying to lead them to the Lord, I'll say, well, there's only one way you can get into heaven, and that's to be perfect. Uh, you try that sometime. And, of course, I, I'll, you want to make sure. You don't want to give them the impression that you think you're perfect. So be careful with that one. I wouldn't share that unless I share it with someone that knows me well enough to know that I know that I'm not perfect. Far from it. But you have to be perfect. See, Jesus in his humanity earns a spotless record so that he could give to us the perfection that we need to get into heaven. That's why it's such great news that a child has been given to us. Which is the second thing that I want to point out is a gift. Notice in verse 6, where to us a child is born, the second line, to us a son is what? Yeah. What has the Lord given us on Christmas? That's why I asked that question earlier. He's given us a son. The, the son that we talk about so much in Genesis 3.15. Where's Genesis 3.15 in our text? It's in verse 6. It's the son. The promised son. Awaited. We don't know how long. How, I don't know what year it was when Adam sinned in the garden. I don't know what year that was. Uh, nobody really knows what year. You have dates being offered, but they don't know what year it was. We don't know what year it was. The Bible doesn't answer that question. I know it was a long time ago. A promise was made that a son would come 
and be our liberator, our deliverer. Here he is. He's still 700 years off, but notice Isaiah is speaking about him as if he has already come. And of course, bringing that into our own contemporary situation, he came 2,000 years ago, didn't he? To us, a son has been given. Why is that such great news? Because he would suffer the penalty for our sins and his humanity. He would be the gift, the greatest gift that we'd ever receive. But I want to point one other thing out before we move on about, about that line. To us, a son is given. Notice that Jesus is a gift. What does that mean? That means that salvation is all a gift. You cannot earn it. You cannot earn it. You will never deserve it. I will never deserve it. All we can do is receive it. The only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that Jesus had to suffer for. That's a humbling thought, but it's a true one. That's a gospel truth. We need to get that deep down in our hearts. What do I bring to this? Because we are so prone to say, Lord, look, look, man, I had perfect Sunday school attendance for 50 years. I got, the, I got the stars. I mean, I got the stars. They gave me the stars, Lord. We're so prone to that kind of thing, aren't we? Well, what do we bring to the table? We bring the filth that Jesus had to clean up. How did he clean it up? Dying, anguish on the cross. Why did he do it? We'll get to that here in a moment. The next thing we look at in verse 6 is that Jesus is a king. Notice the line there. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And if you go down to verse 7, of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. Not, he's not merely an earthly king, but he's king of the universe. Some of you who attended the, the talks that I gave on the ascension will recall all of that. What happens at the ascension? Jesus, he, he's taken up, isn't he? He's lifted by the power of the Holy Spirit. Where is he taken? He's taken to the very throne of heaven. What happens to the throne of heaven? We get a glimpse of it from, Isaiah, from Daniel chapter 7, don't we? And Psalm 24, lift up you gates. Lift up the gates because the owner of heaven is on his way. Who is this owner of heaven? The Lord of hosts is his name. And there Jesus is coronated. There Jesus is given absolute, he's given absolute authority. Who is sitting on, this, on the throne of this whole universe? There's a man sitting there. His name is Jesus. He is a king. He's the occupant of the highest throne. He's possessor of the highest majesty and dignity. We already get a, a glimpse of this. If you just turn uh, back a couple of chapters to Isaiah chapter 6, to a, another passage that many of you know so well, Isaiah has already shown us this. He's, this has already been revealed to us in Isaiah 6, verse 1. In that year, the king Isaiah died. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And notice that line that comes afterwards. And the train of his robe did what? It filled the temple. What does that mean? Well, in, in, in antiquity, ancient monarchs wore, wore these robes. You've seen, you know, you've seen Camelot. You've seen some of those other movies, and they wear these robes, and these robes have these trains that, that hang down. Sometimes all the tenants carrying them around behind them. And the more important the monarch, the longer the, the train is on their robe. 
Here, we're told that this monarch is so important that the train of his robe filled the entire temple. What's that an image of? It's an image of absolute authority. That's what it's an image of. Absolute authority. He is the possessor of the highest majesty and dignity that is possible. And we're told some other wonderful things in verse 7, that it, it is his heart to establish and uphold that kingdom with justice and with righteousness. We're always wanting justice. We're always wanting things done right. That's not going to happen in this world. People are very frustrated because it's never happening. It's never happening because we cannot control human behavior. That's why. And we're not going to ever be able to control human behavior. Only God can do that. So it's always going to be frustrating. And it doesn't matter who you elect to be president or who you don't elect to be president. I get so tired of hearing about all that. We're going to have a human behavior problem until Christ returns. That's what we're going to have. Remember last week, I said we need to view everything through the Scriptures. We need to view everything we're seeing through the Scriptures. This is the way it's going to be. Study the history books. This is the way it's always been. Since the fall in the garden, it's the way that it's always been. But the king that we have here in Isaiah chapter, seven, nine, chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 7, he is going to establish his kingdom with justice and with righteousness going to be a perfect kingdom. Be no frustration. You can spend so much time on each one of these. Notice the next one. Back to Isaiah 6. The very next one. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Counseling is really big today. It has been for quite some time. People um, go to counselors. There's counseling taking place. Counselor here could be counselor to the king. Uh, I think that's more the context here. A counselor uh, to the king, Ahaz is um, in his failures are, are certainly uh, in the immediate context here. If you look at chapter 7 and chapter 8 and the ramifications of his failure. So we could be thinking of the counselors in the Oval Office to put it in a contemporary context. Uh, but we could also be thinking of uh, counselors maybe in the various counseling centers. Uh, we could be thinking of uh, the council that takes place over a cup of tea on a Sunday afternoon. What is needed in all three and everything in between? What's needed is wisdom. And that's what this is pointing to, is wisdom. Why are we seeking counsel like this? Because we recognize we need wisdom. And we recognize that it's not so easy to find, is it? Wisdom is hard to find. Isaiah 19.11, you don't need to turn there, but just listen. The princes of Zoan are utterly foolish. The wisest counselor of Pharaoh gives stupid counsel. That's the news. That's what, that's what was on Channel 9 that day. That, that's the news. That's what's on the news. We're, we're hearing that all the time. Um, the counselors of Pharaoh. The counselors of Pharaoh was one of the most powerful men in the world at that time, and his counselors were said, are told are giving stupid counsel. That's the way it is. But Jesus is the wonderful counselor. He's the wonderful counselor because He's the eternal Word. Where are we going to find this counselor? We're going to find it from the Word of God. That's the only place we're going to find it. And He is the eternal Word. Notice the next thing said of Him is that He's mighty God. Mighty God. Not only is He wonderful counselor, but He is mighty God. Not only will the child be fully human, but He will also be fully God. Literally, He will be Emmanuel. God with us. How can this child bring such light into darkness? 
because this child is God. It's because he's God. It's because he is Emmanuel. Jesus said, I and my Father are one. Not only will he reflect light, not only will light emanate from him, but he has the power to transform the darkness into light. He has the power to transform our hearts that are bent on darkness into hearts that are bent on righteousness. So just as it was important for Jesus to be fully human, he also had to be fully God. Fully human to take our place on the cross. Fully God to be able to withstand the anguish on the cross. Notice the next one. I'm going through these way, really, really could spend a lot of time on them. But notice the next one, Everlasting Father. I'll never forget a question that was asked me at Columbiana County Jail. And by the way, I wasn't, I was there to minister. I wasn't, my wife has told me, when you bring up the jail, you ought to be a little more, a little more clear. Um, different times when I've brought up the jail and I've, in about an hour, Tammy and I are going to be going down the road in the car, and I'm going to say, Tammy, was that okay? Was it clear? And she's going to give me an honest answer. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not so good. And I, I, will, I, will, I remember asking her, I think I gave a talk down at the Clark Field. It was at the Clark Field, and I think I was talking about the jail and talking about records and records. And, and at the end, I, uh, it, uh, we're going down the road, and I said, was that clear? She goes, yeah, it was really clear. Everyone thinks you were in jail. Okay, I was in jail, but I wasn't incarcerated. I want to make that clear because this goes on the internet, you know, it goes all over the place. We got a jailbird preacher here. Uh, um, all kidding and laughing aside, um, one of the inmates asked me a really important question. It was about Christmas time. I don't think I was preaching on this verse, but he just asked me, he said, What's up with Everlasting Father? And I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, this text speaks about Jesus, right? I'm like, yeah. Well, is Jesus the Father? I'm like, no, Jesus is not the Father. He goes, well, it says everlasting Father. What do we do with that? Has anyone ever been tripped over that? Maybe not. Well, he was. I thought it was a good question. What do we do with everlasting Father? What does that mean? Is Jesus the Father? No, Jesus is not the Father. Jesus is the Son. Well, how can, how can the child who is given to us be referred to as everlasting Father? And the answer is of love. The answer is love. God reveals himself to us as a father. What does that mean? He could reveal himself to us as God. I am God. I am El Shaddai. I am Yahweh. He reveals himself to us as, in those ways, too, of course. But he reveals himself to us as a father. What does that express? It expresses love. So here we have a king on a throne with absolute authority who loves his people. And there isn't a one of us that doesn't want love. Is there? I don't think I've ever met anyone who said, man, I just, I'm sick and tired of this love. I don't want any more love. <laughs> that would be a new one. I don't know what I would do with that. <laughs> Give us grace if we have. But 
fading. It sounds like my lapel is fading in and out too. The last one is Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. Jesus' government will ultimately bring peace and peace from oppression. If you look at verse 4, for the yoke of His burden, the staff for His shoulder, the rod of His oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. What is that all about? Well, the circumstances are oppressive. They're very oppressive. We can see why. You've got Assyria coming in and savaging the place and the land, the land never recuperates from that. There's a lot, of, I can't go into all the verses, but that's what, that's what a lot of the verses in chapter 8 are about. Uh, is that the land's not really going to be able to recuperate from this. It's oppressive from this point. And what do we have here? We have peace from oppression. You have broken the oppression as on the day of Midian. What does that mean? Well, if you recall from the book of Judges, in fact, really the, the central judge in the book of Judges is a man by the name of Gideon. And what is Gideon's assignment? Well, Israel is being oppressed by the Midianites. And by the way, they're being oppressed for idolatry. That's, oh, I think, all the case, always the case. And what's happening? Well, they're, they're planting their fields, they're raising their crops, and just before, just before harvest time, uh, the Midianites are coming in like a swarm, like a swarm of locusts. They're coming in with all their camels, they're coming in with all their stuff, and they're just helping themselves to the field. And Israel has to dig these hills and the rocks and... and they dig these caves so that they can hide from them while they're watching all their crops and all their sheep and all their oxen being carried away. And this goes on for seven years. Could you imagine how oppressive that would be? Uh, and to put it in contemporary terms, it'd be like going out and working uh, for a week or two weeks and payday coming and someone taking your paycheck off of you. That'd be about the same thing. This is going on for seven years until Gideon is raised up by the Lord and Gideon, by the God's grace, delivers them can you imagine the feeling when now they can raise a field and not have to worry about it being ravaged by the Midianites? This child who is given unto us will deliver us from all oppressive circumstances. That's where he's taken his people. Deliverance from all oppressive circumstances. Verse 5, deliverance from war. Every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. And one more, peace with God. Look back to verse 1. It says, in the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he is what? He's made glorious the way of the sea. That's peace with God. Jesus ultimately brings us into peace with God. We wouldn't be gathered here this morning if it were not for that. We couldn't sing the, 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 the hymnody that we sang this morning. Thank you, Donald. Exceptional choices, Donald, Alex, both of you. The hymnody we sang, we, we couldn't sing that. We wouldn't sing that. We could hope for that, but what were, where would our hope be? But because of the Son who's been given to us, we can sing that and we can find ourselves in verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. And that's the way we were singing this morning, isn't it? This is the result. So whether we're at the water cooler or whether we're at the kitchen table with a cup of tea, wherever it might be, what do we say? What do we say to our question? How can a child 
bring such light? How can a child bring such joy? Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7 answers. And the darkness quickly flees from His presence and grace. <laughs> Look what the Lord has given us. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank You. We thank You, O Father, that You, you have given us. What You have given us is so tremendous. Uh, to struggle to find any kind of words, any kind of qualifiers or adjectives that would even begin to really do justice to our Lord and Savior. We thank You, O Father, and we thank You that that we can have this peace. We thank You we can have this counsel and this wisdom. We thank You that we can have all of these blessings. O Father, we pray that You would fill our hearts afresh this morning as we approach Christmas Day. Fill our hearts, O Father, with the joy and with the light of our Lord and Savior, the greatest gift that You have given to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.